All right, the first scripture reading uh, is uh, from the fourth chapter of the second letter of Paul to Timothy, found on page 201 in the New Testament of your pew Bible. It'll be 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, and 16 through 18. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. the gospel according to Luke, the 18th chapter, beginning in the ninth verse. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not 
like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast. I give twice, one-tenth of all of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please know that the saying is true, it is worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and in Christ's name we are forgiven. Let us join our hearts in prayer. Help us, O Lord, to truly listen, to hear your word not only with our ears but also with our hearts because it is in the hearts that our imaginations are formed and our inspiration comes and the breath that enters us is then used to do your work and will to the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. Two went up to the temple to pray. One went home justified, the other went home unchanged. Today, we are unveiling our church museum, a tribute to the past generations of our congregation's brief history. It's a brief history if you work with anyone who is an astrophysicist, it is less than a blip. For a little more than 130 years, there have been some Christians that have gathered in the town of LaGrange under the banner of Presbyterianism. Twenty years prior to our first fellowship in 1890, Franklin Dwight Cossett had purchased 600 acres of farmland, an undeveloped prairie, and designed a town with the hope of luring affluent Chicagoans to his intentional community. His enticement scheme involved five lures for the families of Chicago, families he hoped to be of means. The five lures were trees, trains, teetotalers, teachers, and Trinitarians. Cossett set out to address the trees, the first of the five, by planting hundreds of elms all up and down the not-yet-formed boulevards. Many of the trees on the parkings of the streets of LaGrange were actually older than the streets that they aligned because Cossett knew someday a street would go through there and he demarcated them with trees. He also set on the construction of a train station. Rock Island had come out to this area and he decided to make sure it stopped to bring his future residents home. Teetotalers, he banned the sale of alcohol in the township of LaGrange. There were to be no saloons, especially those that would be near uh, the, the hotel, the Windsor Hotel, which is down the street from us. That was a railway hotel, and he didn't want rail workers to get liquored up in his proper town. His plan took off in 1871. 
It took off even though he had built the town in 1870 because the Great Chicago Fire had caused a lot of families in the city of Chicago to rethink how close they wanted to live to their neighbors. And these spacious lots were arranged so that there would be distance between the combustion of one unlike the compact closeness of the city. When he surveyed his property, he also provided ample free space for the construction of both elementary schools and a high school, that was, and then recruited teachers to come and found the educational institutions. He then contracted a regional Protestant denominations to build churches on free land that he had set aside for that purpose. The story goes that when Cossett approached the Presbytery of Chicago, they declined the offer. They figured a town that already had Episcopalians and Congregationalists would have no excess capacity to include Presbyterians. Additionally, the Presbytery was fully focused on rebuilding a church that had replaced the old North Presbyterian Church and Westminster Presbyterian Church in Chicago. The newly formed church, however, had been completely consumed in the Great Chicago Fire and resources were now occupied in rebuilding that congregation's edifice in the center of the city and not concerned with these outlying hinterlands of places as far away as LaGrange. Our Presbytery's obsession with the Fourth Presbyterian Church is not new. <laughs> Twenty years later, a fellowship gathered in LaGrange thinking that this town needed a Presbyterian voice in the community's Protestant choir. And so, our church began. In a few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to tour the garden-level space in our Ashland Avenue Education Building. In addition to several artifacts from previous generations and sanctuaries and educational rooms, which, by the way, is a vindication for every hoarder who says we might need it again, those who have created this space and adjoining archives want to tell you a story. Now, I want to pause here in the middle of my sermon in order to recognize those who have made this space beautiful and possible. The Heritage Museum team, I would like you at this point to stand up. That includes Bill Alkerman, Cammy Klaus, Dorothy DeBoer, Barbara Fisher, Sarah Parks, Della Timmerman, Valerie Jablonski, and uh, they put me on the committee, though Lord knows why. Because they actually did all the work. They've worked hard to organize the information of our congregation's past to bring forward an extremely important message for the present. Their hope is that future members of this community of faith will learn something about how faith works and how congregations endure. From the beginning of this project, I have obsessed over an important purpose for museums. What makes, to me, a museum visit worthwhile is not the oohs and the ahs that you experience within the exhibits, but the way in one, one's heart is transformed changed because of that experience. 
What is important about a museum is not what you experience inside the museum, but how you see the world differently when you exit the museum. To explain what I mean, I want to tell you about a college classmate of mine. It was Ben Geis. We lived two doors from each other in the dormitory my freshman year. Ben was a sophomore. And Ben had grown up in the heady intellectual environs of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. His father was a research chemical physicist at the Oceanographic Institute there. And his mother was an artist. Now when I say that she was an artist, I don't mean that she drew pretty pictures or arranged flowers. I mean she was deeply entrenched in the modern abstract expressionism of the time. She had been personal friends with Jackson Pollock. As a little boy, Ben remembered guests at his family table with names like Kooning, Klein, Rothko, Krasner, and yes, Warhol. Ben was also one of the kindest human beings it has never been, ever been my pleasure to meet. In one conversation, I mentioned how little I liked the modern collection of the Art Institute of Chicago. I preferred to spend my time with the medieval church art collections and then finish my artistic buffet uh, with the Impressionists there on the second floor. Ben frowned and he asked if he could take me to the museum. He was unyielding in his invitation. He set a date for our field trip right then and there. And the coming weekend, we went on the old Illinois Central electric train to downtown Chicago and the Randolph Street station. Ben was absolutely nothing short of giddy. In an animated lecture on the train, Ben started with the works of the Impressionists and then talked about the question of perception, the Impressionists' glance. Can you glance at something and how much do you retain and how do you put that on a canvas? He then spoke with great humor about Paul Cezanne and how he had a radically different understanding of perception. It was not what you took in with your eyes, but it was what you processed with your brain. So if you look at a Cezanne, there are multiple focal points that are out of proportion but speak to you what the eye would glimpse and gaze. Cezanne thought that the processing of seeing happened in the brain, not in the eyes, and his proof was the flat, boring, brand-new photograph. Picasso's cubist visions were quickly dismissed by Ben as a blind alley of structure versus passion, but it was important nonetheless as a bridge to later artists, Ben said. By the time we were walking across Michigan Avenue and heading between the great lions, he was almost running as he discussed Seurat's pointillism and the wave versus particle theory of light that stood behind those dots. Down the halls, past the armor and the swords, Ben rushed to what he knew was important for me to know. A prologue to the abstract moved past us as we went past the Russian Revolution Dadaists and then to the abstractionists. We scurried from canvas to canvas with rapid-fire commentary on each. What was the artist trying to say? What was the painting trying to teach? This was not some highbrow academic debate. These graphic ideas were the language of his childhood family brunch. Conversations held with friends that he knew, people 
whose stories he had been told. By the time we were done, I was transformed. Suddenly, something that I always thought was gobbledygook that a child could do in a kindergarten classroom suddenly made an entirely new sense to me. When I left the museum, I had not only a whole new love for abstract, even the minimalists, I found myself glancing at the world in a whole new way. Asking myself questions not about what I saw, but about how I saw. Tree, taxi, lake, street, pedestrian. The way that I saw things, the angle, the dot, the blur, the color, the form. What made my impression of the world around me? And what kept it from disintegrating into an abstract montage of sensation? That's what a great museum does. It changes not only your understanding of the past and what is curated there, but it changes our perception of the present and opens us to new possibilities for a future. One of the ways that I knew that this was the church for me was when I got my first tour of offices and rooms, I saw over the church secretary administrator's desk a Kurt Frankenstein. Did you know the church had a Kurt Frankenstein? Do you have any idea who Kurt Frankenstein was? What makes this particular portrait, he was born in Germany, he lived in Wilmette, what makes the Kurt Frankenstein important is that he went off the deep end, LSD-laced abstractionist later in his career. And we have in our position one of the very last still-life realistic oils that he painted. It's kind of a boring picture. It's got a picture. It's got some fruit in it. There it is. But the artist was struggling to hold on to reality, and it's one of the last paintings that Kurt Frankenstein did in a very literalist, realistic style. And then I went up to the pastor's office, and there as you enter the door, to the right, is a massive numbered silkscreen Ross Lindsay. It's called Occupied Space 2. It's number 124 out of 950. Did you know that the church owned an original Ross Lindsay silkscreen numbered and signed by the artist? Of course you didn't. Even more so, you don't care. But there is in that a parable. Jesus told a parable, a parable about two visitors to the temple. And it's important to know that the temple was a museum. If you will, it was a triumph to the faith of the Jewish people, their endurance. It was rebuilt beyond its former glory. It was dazzling white. It was full of craftsmanship of the highest order. There were tapestries and frescoes and architectural detail. And two went into that space to pray. One was a Pharisee. He came to the temple to be seen along with the exhibits, to blend in with the hollowed surroundings. He came because that was where he felt he belonged. He himself 
was a curated exhibition. He had groomed for the showing. He had bathed and dressed and fasted and tithed. He worked out. He picked his wardrobe very carefully, right down to Sabbath weight sandals. And the prayer shawl over his shoulder and the phylactery between his eyes, large and ornate. He came not to look, but to be seen. He came not to change, but to fit in. As Jesus said, two went to the temple. The other was a tax collector. There was no point in him dressing up because everybody already hated him on sight. IRS, you know the feeling. He came without showmanship. He went to the corner of the hall, bowed his head. He did not look at the grandeur of the space, but in humble contrast of the grandeur of the space and the humility of his heart. A great museum shows us stuff, yes. But it does something else. It also tells a story that should help us see ourselves more accurately. So as you go downstairs and you consider the exhibited things in the museum, it would be very, very easy to be intimidated by the past. That's really easy when you take a look at the kinds of stuff that the people in our past did that we have neither the inclination or the budget to be able to pull off again. Gabriel's window, lower window was only about 3800 bucks back in the day. Uh, it'll be insured for significantly more. Our alien Skinner organ, uh, our organ builder, as we talked about insurance, said that that puppy would take about $1.3 million to replace. I could hear the property committee saying, what about a really nice boom box? <laughs> the glory days of our congregation came when we had the capacity to be able to buy lots of cool stuff, bronze sculptures, French windows, wrought iron hinges for doors, massive leather-bound Bibles, magnificent musical instruments. Pretty, I suppose. But behind those objects of art and craft, there's another even more powerful exhibition that is on display. There in our museum are stories. Stories of lives changed. The hungry fed. The homeless housed. The forgotten included. The lost welcomed. Those who were mourning, breaking into songs of comfort. Two went into the temple to pray. One left exactly as he had arrived. Haughty, proud, adorned, entitled. The other left transformed. Newly justified, truly righteous, made new by his disposition and his experience, a willingness to allow the space to transform him, 
to see his world in a whole new way because of his encounter. And his metamorphosis arose out of a very simple confession. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. Please stand with me as we affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the church.